Mitchell, before this federal election campaign, Jagmeet Singh's biggest political magic trick might well have been how he managed to turn the heavy NDP losses in 2019, they lost 15 seats, into a kind of victory. He danced after the dismal results and his party embraced him. But for his second federal election campaign, expectations are a lot higher. His party worked closely with the Liberals throughout the pandemic, propping up the Liberal budget and their speech in the throne and working on big policy issues. Now he has an ambitious platform of his own. Well, to maybe build back better the party, he wants a $10 billion national pharmacare program to kickstart next year, build 500,000 affordable housing units over 10 years, get rid of private long-term care homes, tax the ultra-rich, and a lot more. The price tag of all this, well, still unknown. The parliamentary budget officer is calculating it. But can Mr. Singh reverse the orange slide and win government? Let's find out as we begin our leader series on CTV's Question Period. Joining me now is NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. Well, Mr. Singh, great to have you back on the program, of course. Um, i got to start with the current issue of Afghanistan. As you know, um, you have criticized the Liberal Party uh, in terms of how they handled this issue. But Canada got out 3,700 people. That's more than countries like France, the third most per capita. Can you please tell us in detail and practically what you would have done differently, uh, given the fact that Canada, you know, our ground forces left that country back in 2014? Well, what we heard from a lot of veterans, and as information is coming out more and more, it looks like they were reaching out to the Canadian government, reaching out to Justin Trudeau to advise that the process to help our allies that put their lives at risk to support our Canadian forces was too complicated, did not respond to people in a crisis zone. It was not working, and they raised those concerns um, for months and months. And so that's our concern, that for months and months, the calls for a better process to help our allies were not heeded. And sadly, folks have raised a concern that calling an election while this crisis happened may have taken away some resources and time that went towards campaigning that could have gone towards a better response to this crisis. Okay, let me, let me go to healthcare. It's a huge issue. You support mandatory vaccines for all your candidates. You support it for federal workers. You've even said that employees who don't get vaccinated should or could lose their job. Public service unions disagree with you. They don't like it. So could you be clear? Would you oversee firing public servants or them losing their jobs if they refuse to get vaccinated? We know that the vast majority of Canadians uh, want to do their part to keep people safe and want to get vaccinated. And we also know that the vast majority of Canadians believe in, in having some way to prove that, that, that vaccination, having a vaccine passport. And we know that people on the front line that are providing care or providing services directly to Canadians can pose a higher risk and should be vaccinated. So we would work with unions and work with uh, the workers on the ground to make sure we establish a way to move forward, but we absolutely believe that there needs to be mandatory vaccines and there would be consequences for those who are, are not able right. to or not willing to do that. And, and we could look at what those consequences are. But okay, but you've said it, you've said in the in past, I just, you've said important. in the past that the consequence could be they'd lose their job. So you're open to that. No vaccine, no job. Well, if someone doesn't get vaccinated, that's obviously their choice. But if they're providing care or services on the front line, and we've said we've managed, we, we would mandate vaccination for, for frontline workers, for federally regulated workers, then they wouldn't be able to continue in that position. So that's, that's something that, that would be a consequence. And, and we're prepared to do what's necessary to make sure Canadians are safe. Okay, polls 
at this stage don't mean a lot. I understand that. But in 2019, you were explicit. You said, I will never work with a conservative government and a minority government under Andrew Scheer. Would you now, as you have, have seemed to indicate, would you be open to working with a conservative minority government under Aaron O'Toole? Uh, you, you ruled it out in 2019. Are you ruling it out again in 2021? Well, I want to be really clear on this. I'm running to form government. So as a new Democrat government, our goal would be to deliver the help that people need. That's my focus. If you're asking me my position or where I stand on the Conservatives, we've got nothing in common. It's clear they teamed up with Justin Trudeau to fight against getting rid of private long-term care homes and for-profit long-term care homes. They worked together to vote against Pharmacare. So in fact, it looks like Justin Trudeau, Mr. Trudeau, and Mr. O'Toole have more in common since they've worked together to hurt people. We believe in doing everything we can to lift people up and provide them the help they need. Okay, well, we'll find out uh, if there's a minority or not. Uh, climate, obviously a critical issue for many, many people across this country. Uh, you have been open over the years opposing the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. The Liberals spent billions of dollars. They bought it. People can't figure out if you would kill that project if you were in power. If you were the government, would you kill that project and cancel the construction, yes or no? Our position is clear in terms of that uh, this is a project that we've opposed. That's obviously still the case. When it comes to what we would do with the asset, we would have to understand it, take a look at it. There's information we don't have because we're not in government. And then we will look at that information to make the best decision that's in the interest of Canadians. Okay, but Elizabeth May says you've opposed it, but you won't promise to kill it. So. Uh, does that sound very much like the person you've been criticizing, Mr. Trudeau? Says one thing and does another thing. That's what your criticism have been. You don't like the pipeline. You become the government. Do you kill it or not? You know, Joe Biden killed the pipeline. Would Jagmeet Singh kill the pipeline? Well, it's a very different situation in the sense that Mr. Trudeau already bought it and has already started doing you know, some construction. We don't know what that looks like in terms of an asset, and we don't know what would be the best interest in the best interest of Canadians. Once we form government, we would have access to that information, and then we, we would make the best decision possible. You promised to create a national pharmacare program, $10 billion program, but, but you, you, you get it done by 2022. That's in a year. So that, that's provincial jurisdiction. How would you practically get, how can you promise people you'll get something done when you can't really, it's not your timetable, it's the province's timetable. Well, with universal pharmacare, it's something that just makes sense. It's about using our buying power as a nation and negotiating prices as a nation. We already know that each province and territory purchases medication for their, their citizens, for people in hospitals. They already purchase medication. Wouldn't it just make more sense for us to negotiate that collectively? And there's ways to do that right away. Our plan isn't just to have a a stopgap measure, which is what the Liberals are doing, and folks should know that's not universal pharmacare. Our plan is to make sure when someone needs medication, whether they have a plan or they don't have any coverage, we're going to save them money by eliminating any fee when it comes to getting medication. So you always, uh, and you have, uh, stood up for the rights of minorities, and, and you've talked about that uh, explicitly. You face it yourself. But you said on Quebec's most popular television show that you would not appeal or take any action against Quebec's secularism law that prevents people in certain jobs from wearing religious symbols like hijabs, turbans, and, and, and kippahs. You have called the law discriminatory, but you're going to do nothing about it. You won't appeal to the courts. How do you reconcile, how do people trust that you'll actually fight for their rights when in Quebec, a law that you call discriminatory, you refuse to challenge in court? What does that say? 
That's not at all the case. I've said very clearly this law is discriminatory, it divides people, it creates two categories of Quebecers, and it's wrong. Right now it is being fought in court, and I'm a lawyer, and I understand what that means. Right now it's being challenged in court by Quebecers, and that is the right thing to do, and we're going to see what happens with the result of that. We've got to wait and see what happens, and it's being fought in court, and I, and I acknowledge that. I think that's incredible that Quebecers have come together to say, we, we think this is wrong. We also know that in Quebec, people in Quebec aren't unanimous on this. They don't believe this is the right thing. There's a lot of people that are opposed to it. That's the right thing to happen. Right now, it's being challenged in court, and, and we'll see what happens next. I, I will just say, on To Le Mans Parle, the most popular program in Quebec, you said, I will not uh, try to appeal this decision if I was the prime minister, and you said this, I accept that this is Quebec's jurisdiction. So you said one thing to a Quebec audience, sir, that you're, you're saying a little differently here. So I just try to get clear. Would you? No, no, not at all. I said that it is before it the courts, and it's, it's, before, it's before the courts. And as a lawyer, you don't know what a judgment's going to look like until a judgment's released. And so once you look at the judgment, you'll be able to make a determination of the next steps. Right now, it's before the courts, and it's being challenged in court, and that is the right thing to do. I'm going to continue to do exactly what I've done, which is say it is divis okay. it's divisive, it's discriminatory, and it's wrong, and I will continue to do that. All right, uh, Jagmeet Singh, I really appreciate you taking time off uh, well, just a moment out of your busy campaign. Thank you, sir. Of course, thank you. So what comes next in Afghanistan? As Canada's evacuation mission ended on Thursday, thousands of Afghans and their families who have approved visas, who helped Canada during the war, have been left behind. My family is really scared there, and I'm here every day, day and night. I, can, like, I don't know when they're going to start it and how they're going to start it. So I'm stressed here, they're stressed there, plus it's like a life and death situation. This former interpreter's loved ones are facing threats from the Taliban and are now in hiding. After being told to go to the Kabul airport, they waited there for days, but no one came to help. The government says it's looking at other ways to get Canadians and Afghan evacuees to safety, but there are no concrete details. For the uh, Canadians uh, who remain, unfortunately, in Afghanistan, we will continue both to demand that the Taliban uh, allow uh, them to get out to safety, but also to work with international allies and regional partners to ensure that they're able to do that. The deadly situation under the Taliban is now doubly worse by the terrorist attacks at the airport from ISIS-K. That attack killed over 170 Afghans and 13 U.S. service members. Canadian flights have carried out 3,700 evacuees, but now the humanitarian crisis in Kabul is becoming a political crisis on the campaign trail. So what can Canada do now to save the trapped people in Afghanistan? And is Canada prepared to send in more planes into Kabul if the situation changes on the ground? Let's find out. Joining me now is the Foreign Affairs Minister, Mark Garneau, who is not campaigning, but obviously just spending time on the situation in Afghanistan. Thanks for joining us, sir. Uh, the government sent out a letter saying those still trapped uh, there, these are people who had worked with uh, the Canadian forces during the war. They have, many of them have visas to stay put and not to lose hope. But practically, what options are there available for these people to come to Canada. How can the government help when we have no embassy, no diplomats on the ground? So we're going to get them to Canada. We got 3,700 out. Uh, we filled all the uh, airplanes that we were able to bring in. But obviously, there are still Canadians and permanent residents and vulnerable 
Afghans that are still on the ground, and we're now entering phase two, and it is our objective to get them back. So what are the options? Uh, the very first option at the moment uh, is to make the point very strongly with the Taliban, and we're doing this through our various partners, uh, to uh, press them on certain key demands, one of them being safe passage. You may have heard us uh, say that at the G7 as well. We want the Taliban to respect safe passage of Afghans who want to leave the country. That is our number one objective at the moment, and those negotiations are going to be taking place in the coming days. We'll see how the Taliban reacts to that, but obviously that would make a very big difference if they right. agreed to that. But, sir, sir, a lot of people say, what's the leverage Canada has? Um, why would the We're, Taliban, the Taliban have enforced this deadline of uh, August 31st that the Americans had. The Taliban have now shut off access to the airport. The Taliban, we have heard reports that they're already door knocking and maybe in some parts of the country executing people. Why would the Taliban in any way, shape or form feel they have to listen to Canada on that? Well, because the international community has considerable leverage uh, with Afghanistan, and it is in the interests of the Taliban to reach some kind of accommodation. One of the things that's happening at the moment is that uh, a number of the regional countries are, and I'm talking about Turkey and Qatar, are currently talking to the Taliban about the advantages of reopening the airport after the final evacuations take place so that commercial operations can take place so that international aid can come in and so that also people can come and leave the country. They're a landlocked country. It's to their advantage to have an open airport. That is one area, but there are other demands that we will be putting on the Taliban and we do have leverage, particularly of an economic nature. Would we have a C-17 on standby if the airport becomes quote unquote secure in the days to come? Are you suggesting, walk me through, Canada would land another flight at the airport and would Canada, I know we still got special forces soldiers on the ground, would they, like other countries, go outside the wire and escort people to guarantee the safe passage of the Taliban to the airport? Is that what you're saying the plan would be? Uh, what I'm saying, uh, Evan, is that what we are negotiating with the Taliban is safe passage so that those who have travel documents are free to uh, leave the country. And if the Taliban agrees to that, I would, uh, without speculating about whether they will agree or how they will agree or whether there will be any conditions, the most logical thing would be that if the airport is open and commercial operations are allowed to resume, we believe that the Taliban should seriously consider the advantages of having an open right. commercial airport. You know, the criticism is that, that Canada and other countries waited way too long, Kabul fell, uh, and we had bureaucratic snafus, there was paperwork. Uh, we know that, I've spoken to many of the people there who were turned away, they didn't have the right paperwork, they were actually turned away because they didn't have a passport. Um, what do you tell the, the, the families now, sir, who are left behind? So let me say let something me know, here. But, but hold on, because it's important, because I'm talking to them all the time on the ground in Kabul, I'm sure you are. They're left and behind. And I am talking to them. No, okay, but let so me what tell you. you say let, let me say, these are heartbreaking stories. And if you don't think that we feel it, you're wrong. We have been dealing with this 24-7 for a very long time. And I feel very badly that we haven't been able to get everybody out. And in terms of the criticism of us starting too late, fair enough, fair enough. 
Nobody. That's why there are 13 countries uh, in, as part of the airbridge. Nobody anticipated the speed with which right. the Taliban would take over the country. Sir, I, again, I got to push back. You know there were ceaseless warnings of the rapid collapse of Afghanistan. There were Pentagon warnings. Like whether governments listened or not is a different issue. That's an issue of competence and communication. There were legitimate warnings. We had a program. I know we've been off out of there since 2014. But a lot of folks cannot just say, well, the rapid collapse. Our paperwork wasn't ready. We closed our embassy soon. There, there are decisions that demand accountability. And every life that was left behind, we've got to find out, could we have done better? And many of your critics say, yeah. And the better way to do it is quit more quickly, better, uh, quicker plans, uh, getting rid of the bureaucratic paperwork to get people out. So we accept that criticism. And what we are focused now is on moving forward because there are still many Canadians, there are permanent residents, and there are vulnerable Afghans that we want to get out of the country. And that is what we are focused on. We accept the criticism and we are moving forward with trying to uh, uh, deal with the situation, the reality of the, of the situation on the ground. With respect to the embassy, uh, I will make the point that it is a requirement uh, that when the ambassador of a country says that I am now concerned about the life of my staff, that we as a government listen to that, and we did listen right. to that. I just have to ask you one last question, Mr. Garner. You're on this full time, and I appreciate it. Uh, yeah. you, you can't campaign um, because you're so busy on this. Why not? It's an international emergency. Again, your critics are going to say, this is one more reason why it was not right for the Liberals to call this election. It was the timing was bad. You should be focused, not just you, but even Justin Trudeau, full time on this humanitarian crisis, not on campaigning. What is your so, answer to that? You know, the answer is that we are full time on this. Uh, we have been on this full time since the beginning of the election. That is our number one priority. But not Mr. Trudeau. Am, you, not Mr. I, Trudeau. Uh, I'm very, well, he is the leader of our party. I'm very proud as the foreign minister that I'm devoting all of my time towards this very, very right. critically important issue. Mr. Garner, I really appreciate your time. Uh, it is a critical issue and I appreciate you joining us this morning. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. So is the debate over mandatory vaccines emerging as a major wedge issue in the federal election campaign? Well, look, there is a small, but loud anti-vaxxer movement, and it's pushed its way onto the campaign, uh, forcing Justin Trudeau, for an example, to cancel an event due to security reasons. Check this out. Now, all parties are condemning this kind of vitriol, but Mr. Trudeau is pressing the vaccine issue on certificates. He's now promised a billion dollars to help the provinces and territories with their so-called vaccine passports. So if your premier, wherever you are across the country, if your premier mandates that everyone in your local restaurant or gym or other non-essential locations must be fully vaccinated and show proof, we'll pay for the development and rollout of that program. So vaccines and health care are fundamental issues on the election. The Conservatives plan to increase the Canadian health transfer by 6% annually, reversing a formula that Stephen Harper passed and that the Liberals continued. But Aaron O'Toole also promises to have more private-public synergies within the universal access mandate. If Saskatchewan, Alberta, Ontario or Quebec want to innovate to provide 
better health care, I support that. Why? Because it gives Canadians more choice. The more choices Canadians have in health care, the better. Meanwhile, the NDP is promising universal pharmacare by 2022, but there are no details as to how they would do it. So how will vaccines shape the rest of the campaign and would Canada's universal health care system be under threat with more private-public synergies? Well, let's find out. Joining me now are Liberal candidate Jennifer O'Connell, Conservative candidate Eric Duncan, and NDP candidate Claire Haxel. Good morning to everybody. Uh, Ms. O'Connell, I'll start with you. The Liberals are promising this billion dollars to help provinces with these vaccine certificates or passport. What are the details there in terms of personal privacy, what they can be used for, consistency? How would that money well, be used? Well, I think the point of uh, providing these funding is to help support provinces and territories with their plans. As we know, not every single province and territory has released their plans. Some are moving far ahead. So I think we want to be flexible to ensure that provinces and territories are not avoiding the mandatory vaccinations or vaccine certification due to a lack of ability to implement. That's where we want to be there to help support them in whatever they need because we want our communities safe. We want our kids to go back to school in a safe way. We want to be able to travel again. So if the federal government and if our liberal government's reelected, we want to make sure provinces and territories have everything they need to provide those tools to keep our communities safe. Uh, Mr. Duncan, the Conservatives are not looking to enforce mandatory uh, vaccine vaccines, even for your own candidates. That's been an issue. But does the CPC support mandatory vaccine passports as a way of keeping the economy going. We understand even provinces like Ontario are, are, might be changing their tune on that after resisting them. What's your party's position on certificates and the use of them? So uh, on certificates, Evan, as we have done throughout the campaign and as we've done throughout the whole COVID pandemic, is that the jurisdiction of the provinces to determine restrictions uh, and safety measures province by province will continue to do that. And as always, we have a good working relationship with the provinces. That will be no different on that. Evan, I want to talk about mandatory vaccines as well, to your point on that. We've spoken in this program before about that, and we've been very clear that although it's individual choice on there, there's a lot of things the federal government can do from a leadership role when it comes to, for example, uh, testing in workplaces of keeping our workplaces, our offices safe as well. Ms. Hagsell, what should happen to those people who refuse to be vaccinated? I know NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, who was on this program earlier, said discipline may be necessary uh, firing employees. But in your view, what's your party's position on the certificates and how to enforce them? Yeah, absolutely. Look, here's the thing. 76% of Canadians approve of a national vaccine passport. And, you know, this is a classic example of the Liberals, Justin Trudeau and O'Toole, you know, just talking around in circles when we what we really need is national leadership. People need to have national standards, especially when they travel between provinces. And just as you pointed out, leaving the country and traveling overseas, you have to show a vaccine passport to come into Canada. We should be giving Canadians that same passport so that they can go and travel overseas. And it's very frustrating to see that, you know, Trudeau is only now coming out with this support for a vaccine passport when the truth is you know vaccines started becoming available in january he's had nine months to do this okay it is provincial jurisdiction let me just quickly go to the the health issue and I'll, I'll start with you mr duncan because this has been an issue for your campaign on the private health care options mr o'toole has said he wants more 
public-private partnerships. He's still promising to protect universal access. But I spoke to the president of the Canadian Medical Association, Dr. Smart. She didn't buy that. She says this is actually a step towards a bigger two-tier healthcare system. I just want to show you what she said when I asked. I think that is one step towards a two-tiered healthcare system. And what we know from other countries that have gone in that direction, ultimately what it does create is two standards of healthcare, one for people who can pay and one for people who can't. You can't have both ways. It's just, a, in her mind, a slippery slope towards more two-tier healthcare. What, what's your response to the CMA? That's absolutely incorrect. That's the first I've just seen that clip. But Evan, uh, on the situation, universal public access to healthcare is a Canadian part of our Canadian identity. It's part of our characteristic and the backbone of our country and our healthcare system. That won't change. Every Canadian uses a health card to get services in this country. And under an Aaron O'Toole government, that will absolutely be the case. I'll just mention the hypocrisy here, Evan. Give an example for Canadians to understand the context of this. Vaccinations, which we just talked about. Pharmacies, local pharmacies, thousands across this country, including where the Prime Minister and the Deputy Prime Minister got their vaccines from, were done at a private right. pharmacy. There is a room, that's what we're talking about there, is partnering with places like that and doing that. So it is fear-mongering to suggest a two-tier system or a user pay or anything right. along those lines. That is not the case. Ms. O'Connell, you can, you can uh, push back. I just want to say, I know that transfer reverses the Stephen Harper federal transfer cut that the, not cut, reduction from 6% correct. Correct. Uh, that the Liberals accepted. Ms. O'Connell, um, what do you say about that? Well, I mean, clearly the Conservatives are talking out of both sides of their mouths because the, Mr. O'Toole has even said that he would not enforce the Canada Health Act against provinces and territories who created the two-tier system. So they're trying to tell Canadians today that they're going to uphold our universal health care while at the same time providing the opportunities for provinces and territories to create a system that allows for those who can afford to pay to skip in line ahead of the rest of us. That's and that's precisely what but, the CMA but, but, but is what afraid the, of and talking about. But what did the Liberal government the do over system. six years, just to be fair? For six years, there was private health operators and, for example, MRIs and diagnostics in Quebec. I, don't, I didn't see you claw back uh, on the, your government claw back on that. Like, why suddenly now and not over six years? Well, it's not suddenly now. We have been talking about these issues. We have been acting. I remember even our first uh, budget and our investments in healthcare were really specific to targeted needs. We were working with provinces and territories to make sure the universality of our healthcare system. And in contrast to the Conservatives, we're investing to eliminate wait lists, $10 billion. We're investing to have more doctors and nurses and nurse right. practitioners. Well, conservatives want to create a system where those who can afford it get the access and the rest of us oh. are left out in the cold. Earth. I know, uh, Ms. Haxall, I know you're shaking your head there, so I want to get to you. But could you also answer what would the NDP do, for example, about private clinics in Quebec, like the diagnostics, that they have a 2005 Chihuly decision that actually says they can do that. Uh, would, would an NDP government shut those down? Well, I think we have to be enforcing the Canada Health Act across the country, but I think it's very rich to hear from the Liberals saying that the Conservatives are the ones who are trying to privatize health care when it's the Trudeau and the Liberals and the Conservatives who teamed up to vote against taking profit out of long-term care. 
We live in a country where you can work your entire life, pay taxes, contribute, and when you hit it, and participate in the public health care system, and then when you hit a certain age, you're forced to go into a private health care system that has taxpayer dollars, but their interest is profit, not quality. Okay, I've got to leave it there. I think health care is obviously a big issue on the trail. I also want to thank you all, not for not even interrupting each other very much. This is a, this is a, a real welcome thing, but we, we heard all your positions and I really appreciate airing them out. Okay, Jennifer O'Connell, Eric uh, Duncan, and Claire Haxel, appreciate uh, all three candidates joining us. When we come back, as momentum shifts to the Conservatives and the NDP, according to some polls, do the Liberals need a campaign reset or is it still too early for that? We'll break that down with Ron Ambrose, Tom Mulcair, and Peter Dinolo next. Stay right here with Question Period. The most reliable way to predict the future is to create it. That's what Abraham Lincoln once said, and it's advice every campaign tries to follow. They are trying to shape the election for their party. And with 22 days left in the campaign, the fight to create that end result has dramatically altered the momentum of the campaign. Check this out. In the Daily Nano's tracking numbers, the Conservatives have now opened up a two-point lead on the Liberals. The Conservatives at 33.2%, the Liberals at 31.1%, NDP 19.9%, Greens at 5.7%. That's a survey of 1,200 respondents ending August 28th, margin of error plus or minus 2.8 percentage points, 19 times out of 20. So, still very early, so you always be careful reading too much into these daily tracking numbers. Things can change quickly on a campaign, but these are significant trends. Do the Liberals, who called this election, who were ahead in the polls a month ago, need to recalibrate their strategy? What are the leaders doing right or wrong? Let's find out. Joining me now, former interim conservative leader Ron Ambrose, former NDP leader and CTV political commentator Tom Mulcair, and former liberal communications director Peter Dinolo. Good morning to everyone. Uh, and let me start with Peter. Uh, the liberals called this election. Uh, is there a central defining issue? What, in your view, is shaping this campaign? And do they have to kind of recalibrate? This was always the danger of calling an election to only two years into the mandate, uh, with the public, you know, really grappling uh, with the pandemic still and trying to get to some semblance of normal. So the prime minister didn't articulate a really um, compelling reason for an election other than, you know, the open secret that he thought he could win a majority. Uh, and that's in his interest, not the public's interest. And that was you know, clear from the beginning. You want to talk about, about recalibrating. It's also about seizing opportunity. That crazy mob display on Friday uh, at that liberal rally, that aborted liberal rally, to me is an opportunity for the, for the prime minister to kind of recalibrate and to say, hey, I'm standing up against this 20% this, this, this of Canadians who is holding back the other 80% of Canadians from moving forward past the pandemic. I think if he were to, to, to he, needs a, he needs a foe in this campaign, he needs a, a foil. I don't think O'Toole is the foil because I think O'Toole has moderated himself very effectively. I think he should be running against the 20% who we saw in, a, in, in all their ugliness on Friday. Uh, Ron, just weigh in on that and your view, who's, who's playing this right and who's weak? Who's strong, who's weak right now? Well, I think, I think Peter's right. People are still asking, why are we having a campaign? You know, BC is on fire. The pandemic is, is getting worse with the Delta variant. People are worried about their jobs. There's just a lot of anxiety and fear out there. And people want the government to be in charge. And I think, you know, being in an election does not feel like the government's in charge. And of course, 
Um, Afghanistan is a whole other issue. I think when there's an emergency in any of our lives, you know, at a more practical level, we stop everything and we focus. And it didn't feel like we stopped everything and focused on Afghanistan. And I think people notice that. And I look at Aaron and and Aaron looks like he's having fun. He looks like he has a lot of energy. His team is doing a great job in the campaign. He's a, people call him a happy warrior. That is how he's coming across. You know, some conservatives might argue he's, he's growing the size of government and spending too much money, but he's spending it on the right social issues that matter to people right now um, in their lives. So I think he's doing a really good job. I think the threat for Justin Trudeau is Jagmeet Singh because Jagmeet's running a great campaign. He's very affable, very likable. Uh, and of course, in some of those Ontario writings, if Jagmeet does well, that actually helps the Tories. For sure. That's the split. Tom, Tom, just wait on that. There's no question. Ron is right. Uh, Aaron O'Toole has moved, you know, after tack and right in the leadership. He's clearly going after that that center. So that's the, the, the what would be called the blue red switcher on that. What, what dynamic are you seeing playing out here so far? And what what are you expecting to see? I, I think that the conservatives have completely caught the liberals off guard. And at the beginning of the campaign, it was supposed to be easy. Carpet bomb the conservatives, define Aaron O'Toole as Andrew Scheer, and move on and win a majority. Oops, that didn't work. They attacked him on abortion. They attacked him as an anti-vaxxer. All that stuff just washed off him. He's been defining himself. You know, talking about getting a place for labor at the boardroom table, that's important. And people get that. And it's a symbol of his own values. When he starts talking about the opioid crisis, He's showing compassion, understanding, empathy, real values that he's transmitting to Canadian voters, and it's really starting to show in the polls. All right, uh, so Peter, just in the last couple of minutes we've got, so now what? They got the, the French language debate. That's interesting because the Bloc Quebecois has, you know, they're going to play a huge role here. Uh, what are you looking for? Any dramatic shifts in the campaign? What needs to happen now to shake this up? I mean, uh, Tom and Ron are right. The, the, the risk is going to be that generals always fight the last war, right? Listen, I've been involved in the most successful and the most disastrous campaigns of the last 30 years, so I know a bit about this. And they're going to pull out the playbook to try and Andrew Shearize, if you will, Aaron O'Toole. It's not going to work because he's already established himself among Canadians. I think the, the, the Trudeau still needs to pivot back to the uh, pandemic to vigorous action about the pandemic and not kind of like when he said the other day about these this mob of protesters, they weren't even protesters, this angry mob um, at the liberal event when he said, listen, I understand where they're coming from. They're scared. I appreciate that. No, no, this isn't a moment for I feel your pain. This is a moment right. for Justin Trudeau to have a just watch me moment. And if he shows that kind of steely leadership uh, and, and connects his reelection uh, play for something to move the country forward pandemic-wise, then I think he's got a chance to get this back on track. Uh, right now, listen, a majority is out of sight. Even a victory is in doubt at this stage. He needs to do something that direct to show his steeliness and not to worry about, you know, triangulating against Jagmeet Singh and, and Aaron O'Toole or Blanchet in Quebec, but really to show what he's made of. And if he can seize that moment, then then he can move. He can turn this thing around. Okay, just the last minute. Uh, Rana, then Tom, what are you expecting to see uh, if anything changes as we enter this crucial part of the campaign? Well, yeah. I think we're going to see more policies from the Liberals that are anti-business, um, anti-competitiveness. And I say that because uh, I believe they're going to tack to the left and continue to target um, big business. Uh, to hopefully 
garner back some of those progressive votes that they're they're losing to Jagmeet Singh with his wealth tax. You know, that obviously is concerning from a, a competitive competitiveness standpoint. I think we're going to see some pretty harsh attacks attempted on Aaron O'Toole, but I agree with Peter. I don't think they'll work. Uh, last word to you, Tom. Quebec voters are known to move in unison. They have sent massive majorities in, in one generation of Conservatives, Liberals, Bloc, and NDP to Ottawa. If O'Toole continues to lead in the polls, watch for a major move amongst Quebec voters. That will hurt the Bloc terribly and might even hurt several Liberal seats in the outside area of Montreal. Oh, that's interesting. So watch that debate coming up September 2nd, the first debate, uh, Tevia. Uh, that'll be interesting in Quebec. Uh, all right, I got to leave it there. Peter Dinolo, Rana Ambrose, Tom Walker. Big prediction there, Tom. Interesting. All right, thanks to the three of you. Time is running out for people in Afghanistan who want to escape as U.S. President Joe Biden remains committed to pulling out all U.S. troops from Kabul in just two days, a deadline the Taliban are enforcing. Canada's rescue operation of Afghans seeking asylum in Canada ended on Thursday, just hours before a deadly explosion rocked Hamid Karzai International Airport. The decisions that we have made as a result of making sure that our own uh, personnel uh, remain uh, safe. Even though our military have now concluded the evacuation, we are continuing to work tirelessly with our allies and our partners in the region to pursue every option to get the people that we need to get out of Afghanistan. So the Canadian government is saying it will continue to try to help those trying to escape, as we heard from the Foreign Affairs Minister Mark Garneau earlier in the program. But is it realistic? Plus, with the federal election underway, how will the evolving situation in Afghanistan affect the vote? Has this become a credibility issue for Mr. Trudeau? To answer all that and where this campaign is heading next week, Joyce Napier, our CTV Ottawa Bureau Chief, is on the scrum today. So is Stephanie Levitz, reporter with the Toronto Star. And our special guest is retired Major General David Fraser who was the first Canadian to command American troops since the Second World War in Afghanistan. He oversaw Operation Medusa in 2006. Good to have all of you. Uh, Major General uh, Fraser, uh, always thank you for your service. Um, what's your assessment of, of where the Canadian uh, operation is at now? When they're, they're promising to try to keep helping people, practically what can they do? What should they be doing? Well, first of all, we've got still 80% of the people that we're trying to help out of uh, Kabul stuck in Kabul and without an option uh, to get out at this stage in the game because of what's just happened this week with the terrorist attack and the air bridge being closed. So the initiative by the Turks and uh, the Qataris is actually going to give us some hope for uh, chartering aircraft to get them out, but we're going to need the Canadian government to support us to continue to streamline the bureaucracy uh, to mitigate the terrorist threat and get our people out of that country. So, Steph, I spoke to uh, Mark Garno earlier in the program. He accepted the criticism of uh, that there was too much bureaucracy in the past, but he said we got to move forward. What, what's your assessment about how Canada ended this mission and, and, and the go-forward plan they're talking about now? So a couple of things. I mean, I'm among the reporters, you know, who's working flat out to get our own former fixers out of Afghanistan. And the things that we're hearing from the ground are that they needed a plan going forward, which is to say a number of folks have now already been able to flee the country. They're in Islamabad. They're in other places. What is the system that is in place to expedite those visas? In some cases, if you just could give those people a green stamp on their visa now, transfer, transportation could be arranged out of those third countries. 
The thing that is frustrating about this process and, you know, full credit to the diplomats, full credit to the soldiers who managed to achieve what they did. But it seems as though there was no secondary planning going on simultaneously saying, okay, if we can't get everybody out, then what? And it seems to me that the government keeps making announcements and then allows the bureaucracy to catch up to them after the fact. And yes, this is a rapidly evolving situation. Yes, this is rapidly changing. But at some point, we do have immigration officials in offices around the world who could just process these files faster. How hard is that? Yeah, Joyce, uh, just getting them out before they can even get a chance to process is one of the issues. But Joyce, uh, this is something that Mr. Trudeau is being questioned at every single stop. Uh, the Liberals have pointed out that Canada has got 3,700 people out. That's more than France. That's more than a lot of other countries. Does, how is this playing out uh, politically on the campaign trail? Well, it's obviously dogging him during the campaign when he has his question periods with reporters every morning. The first questions are always on Afghanistan, Evan. Clearly, look, it's, it, it is a, a humanitarian disaster in waiting. Uh, Canada telling these people to either stay put in wherever they are because the situation is too dangerous or get yourselves to the borders. Now, that's a mission impossible. How are these people going to get to any border, to the Pakistani border? They're telling them, look, we have three, um, three diplomatic missions in in Pakistan, you can get there. Once you get to the border, they will let you in. Right. They will facilitate this. But getting to the border is the big question. You know, this is this is a tribal country. This is a country of alliances. So, Dave Fraser, I mean, you're working with these people. I know the government's told them to shelter in place. What's the plan for these people? Like, what, what's their option? Well, first of all, we don't know what the government option is. What we're telling our people, and I suspect a lot of groups are, shelter in place. We call it hibernate until the conditions uh, uh, present themselves that they can get out. The land options are next to impossible. As Joyce said, they, it's a tribal country. Depending on what tribe you are, you may or may not be able to, to move. And where to? Where, to, where are you going to go? You're going to go north? You're going to go east? Uh, so the, tr the land option is, is virtually impossible. Air option is the only thing we have right now. We've got to create a plan where we start giving people visas, getting charter aircraft in there. When the airport opens up, that's going to be the best way to get these people out. Okay, uh, let, let me just broaden out real quick, Steph and, and Joyce, just before I let you go. Week three of the campaign is here. Still not a defining issue. Afghanistan's played a role. Steph, uh, what are you seeing and what are you looking for in week three? So one of the things I'm wondering in week three is what's going to happen with the to use a phrase, the security situation on the ground for our campaigns. We've seen really angry protesters now showing up again and again um, at liberal rallies, forcing one of them to be canceled. Is that going to be an ongoing narrative in this campaign? Are we going to see the continued use of mandatory vaccinations as a wedge issue? And what does that mean going forward? Uh, Joyce, uh, last word to you. What are you looking for this week? What's, what's shaping this thing so far? Well, there is one debate in Quebec this week, uh, the TVA debate. All the leaders will be there. I'm looking at that. I'm also waiting for the Liberals to do something as the Conservatives are catching up. Um, and you saw those, those polls and, and, and voters are, are watching those polls. 
Are the liberals going to go negative? Are there going to be indirect attacks to certain, in certain writings, uh, in certain key writings? Is it going to get nastier? And right. I'm willing to bet it will get nastier. All right, I got to leave it there today. Uh, Major General uh, Dave Fraser, thanks for your service. Steph and Joyce, always great to have the two of you as well. Uh, that is question period for this week. I want to thank all of you for watching as we rapidly head toward, we're closing in on the halfway mark of the campaign already. I will see you tomorrow on CTV's Power Play for our extended two-hour edition from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. Eastern. In the meantime, hug your loved ones, stay safe, and we will be back here in seven short days.